It's April 23, 1985 in San Antonio, Texas. 35-year-old reporter Dan Locke strides through the halls of KHLO-TV on his way back from lunch. In his right hand, Dan clutches a small cooler filled with his favorite beverage. Dan doesn't drink tea, he doesn't drink coffee, milk, or beer. Dan drinks Coke, sometimes as many as 12 bottles a day. So Dan carries his own personal stash with him wherever he goes. As Dan closes his office door, a big smile washes over his face. He sets the cooler on his desk, reaches inside, and pulls out an ice-cold six-and-a-half-ounce bottle. He pops the top and takes a big, refreshing sip. But Dan's managing editor interrupts the daily ritual. So, Dan, be honest. Does it feel like your whole life just got flushed down the toilet? She flashes Dan a devilish grin, but Dan doesn't get the joke. I'm sorry, what? What are you talking about? I'm surprised to see you smiling. I thought after today's news, you'd be pretty upset. News? What news? You didn't hear? Coca-Cola. Coca-Cola's getting rid of Coke and replacing it with a new one. (laughs) Oh, that's, yeah, very funny. No, Dan, I'm not kidding. They had a press conference this morning in New York. Coke is out. New Coke is in. Dan's smile disappears. When I heard the news, you were the first person I thought of. Oh, I'm so sorry, Dan. Well, enjoy it while it lasts. As his co-worker walks away, Dan plops down in his desk chair, shocked. But soon, his shock turns to panic. Dan has just a few bottles left in his cooler and only a case or two back home. When Dan realizes how close he is to running out of Coke, his eyes flash red with anger. Frustrated, Dan reaches for his office phone and dials a number. Thank you for calling the Coca-Cola hotline. How may I help you? Tell me it's not true. Tell me you're not taking away my Coke. When the operator confirmed the news that New Coke would be replacing what was his favorite beverage in the world, Dan was gobsmacked. After sitting at his desk in silence for 20 minutes, Dan borrowed a pickup truck from a co-worker, drove to a San Antonio bottler, and bought 110 cases of Coke for $979, the equivalent of nearly $2,500 today. Dan even briefly considered cashing in some of his wife's stock and buying more. Dan wasn't the only customer or the only reporter who was furious. After the press announcement on April 23rd, or Black Tuesday as it came to be called, the media declared New Coke a failure even before Coca-Cola had put the product on the shelves. Angry customers flooded the call center and wrote impassioned letters, some with comments like, Monkeying with the recipe is akin to diddling with the U.S. Constitution. Changing Coke is like God making the grass purple. And I don't think I would be more upset if you were to burn the flag in our front yard. Coca-Cola chairman Roberto Goizueta might have misjudged the importance of brand loyalty, but he wasn't wrong about his internal market research. In blind taste tests, new Coke did perform better than Pepsi and better than old Coke. Almost 20 years after the new Coke launch, this fact led one New York journalist to conclude that new Coke didn't really fail. According to Mother Jones reporter Tim Murphy, New Coke was murdered. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! 
And even... Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. From Wondery, I'm Lindsey Graham, and this is Business Movers. If New Coke was murdered, it died a slow death. Roberto Goizueta kept the controversial soft drink on shelves until 1992, when it was renamed Coke 2. That version of the soft drink would survive until the summer of 2002, when it was finally discontinued. But in 2019, new Coke came back from the dead, when the hit Netflix series Stranger Things transported its audience back in time to 1985, the same year new Coke was born. How do you even drink that? Because it's delicious. What? What? It's like Carpenter's The Thing. The original is the classic. No question about it. But the remake? Sweeter. Bolder. Better. You're insane. In 2019, as part of a Stranger Things promotional campaign, Coca-Cola produced 50,000 cans of new Coke. Many media outlets conducted taste tests. One of them is our guest, Tim Murphy, a senior reporter at Mother Jones and author of the article, New Coke Didn't Fail, It Was Murdered. Here's our conversation. Tim Murphy, thanks for speaking with me on Business Movers. Thanks for having me. The name of this series is Coca-Cola's Greatest Mistake. So I have to ask the question, was it Coca-Cola's greatest mistake or maybe a stroke of genius? You know, it was a little bit of both. In both cases, I think it was sort of accidental. You know, it's been sort of ascribed, you know, through the ages as this monumental, you know, colossal disaster for the company, which in, in some ways it was this blunder in in which they, you know, radically changed something that had worked for almost 100 years. A classic example of if it ain't broke, don't fix it. In reality, things were kind of broken for Coca-Cola at that moment. They were hemorrhaging sales to their bitter rival, Pepsi. You know, Americans' palates were changing. They had been lagging behind on the soda market um, in terms of adapting to that. So Coca-Cola really did feel like, you know, it needed to try something new. And by all accounts, you know, they put a ton of work into this and created a product that both, you know, research at the time and, you know, early on in, in its existence showed that this was like a pretty good soda. They'd done the kind of rebranding work that they thought that they needed to do. You know, this wasn't this wasn't some like sort of thing they did on a whim. But they didn't fully recognize in all of their testing of the flavors of this and, and even of the branding, they didn't fully recognize just 
what would happen when you threw a, a sort of new product like New Coke into all of the sort of politics and culture that was surrounding its product and, and in the soda wars themselves. So they they focused a lot of research on making a good soda and not on trying to predict what would happen and how this would play in, in the American culture wars. So it was kind of hijacked by that in the end. But then at the end of the day, it worked out for them because they reverted or, or sort of came up with this compromise called Coke Classic, um, which really helped turn things around for the company. Well, let's talk about the soda itself. Of course, some of this, the impetus for New Coke came from the Pepsi Challenge. And I've heard that you conducted your own taste test at Mother Jones, putting New Coke up against Coke Classic and Pepsi. So I'm curious, what were your results? Our results were extremely chaotic. I, mean, I think that was kind of the point, you know, like maybe for some people that this was this was a, a great new soda. Maybe for some of these people, they could taste the difference between them. And a lot of people, you know, a soda is a soda. This is all sort of clustered together on the spectrum of taste, not as far apart from any of these things as maybe the branding companies would like you to think. So we tried this and people, I think, were primed to have opinions and, and be picky about how things tasted. And almost to a person, every single member of our taste test team in our test kitchen got it wrong. They would taste it and they'd, they'd hate it and they'd say, oh, this must be new Coke. Or they'd say, ah, this is the Coca-Cola taste I know and love. And it would actually be new Coke and not Coke Classic. So, you know, it, it turns out that it, it's kind of harder to, to really gauge the difference in that thing, you know, when you do these taste tests. And, and that's kind of part of the point is that, um, you know, love it or hate it, it was at least a perfectly fine soda. Yeah, a perfectly fine soda that got introduced into a market that was not interested in a perfectly fine soda. Um, you're primarily a political reporter for Mother Jones, but you wrote about New Coke. So what's the connection there? Why were you interested in this topic? I had gone to the world of Coke in Atlanta on a you know a reporting trip you know, for a political story in, and I'd say, 2017 or something and, and seen this document sort of shunned off to the side at World of Coke, which is like a museum for Coca-Cola. And... It was this like founding mission statement for the New Coke research project, which took its name from, I think, like the Allied invasion of Normandy, you know, and, and, and considered itself the corporate equivalent of that on, on scale, this, you know, attempt to kind of retake dramatically all of this turf that they had seeded. And it was just extremely overwrought. But you could also see that in this long mocked corporate episode, was this enormous undertaking, you know, this enormous amount of work that they'd put into this, that they hadn't just kind of aimlessly wandered into this fiasco, that it had been years and years of in the making in, in terms of research. And so I was fascinated in, in trying to sort of more fully understand how that had gone wrong or whether it had truly gone wrong. And as I started to read into it and started to read up on the backlash and pour over old newspapers and columns and, and news segments and that kind of thing, it just started to look kind of familiar. You know, this wasn't just like the judges in a test kitchen, you know, rendering their verdict, that this was really uh, a cultural politics that we see all the time, you know, that people were projecting their own anxieties about losing power in society onto a soda. And so Coca-Cola was paying the price for that. So I, I saw that and recognized that and just started writing. You mentioned it, that it's something that's familiar, a projection of our social anxieties onto a product. How is it familiar? You know, you could tell from the reaction that this, 
while people, you know, would claim to, and perhaps in some cases, really have this deep, deep, deep connection to the taste of Coca-Cola, like that they were also lamenting something that really had nothing to do with Coca-Cola. You know, the, the buzzwords that would start to fly out of pundits and out of, you know, man on the street interviews were things like freedom and heritage and and liberty and, and change. Um, you know, at one point, Coca-Cola, I think, said change is something the American people identify with. And that was their argument for why the soda was going to take off and why they wouldn't face a blowback for that. But that was a really loaded statement because change is also something that many Americans are fiercely, fiercely resistant to. And so they weren't just reacting to the soda, they were reacting to the idea of change and, you know, the idea of change in the 1980s and all of the sort of cultural and and racial components that are baked into that. Pepsi represented something very aggressively new and modern and younger and more diverse. You know, Pepsi and Coke had both thought about getting Michael Jackson to be their ad campaign spokesperson, I think in like the early 80s. And Coca-Cola had decided that he wasn't all American enough to use their term. They both represented sort of different cultural spheres. And Coca-Cola's actions were seen by a lot of people as a betrayal of what Coca-Cola stood for to them. Well, let's investigate what Coca-Cola stands for. In your article, you referenced Thomas Oliver's book, The Real Coke, The Real Story. In it, he explains the resistance to New Coke as a, a continuation of the politics of, of Reconstruction, of the Civil War. What's, what's the relationship between soft drinks and the Civil War? Yeah, Coca-Cola was, you know, born in Atlanta and a strongly Southern company in its identity. You know, that was its base of support from which it went on to conquer the world. And that was a matter of pride. I mean, it had this big bottling network in the South. And, you know, you, you wouldn't just walk into some of these places and, and get a Pepsi. I mean, it was it was Coke at the Varsity, the venerable Atlanta restaurant. You know, it's a, a Coke establishment. So the fact that Coca-Cola, this great Southern company, was coming out and sort of saying that it needed to be something different, that it needed to be something, you know, newer. They, they unveiled Coca-Cola, the new Coke at Lincoln Center in Manhattan. That was something that critics seized on. Why did you have to go to New York to do this? You know, the people at the varsity, when they rejected New Coke in a taste test, although not by the large margin as you'd expect, you know, asked how come nobody had ever asked them for their opinion. So there was this idea that they were being left behind, that their power was being transferred to somebody else. And so you have a, a real regional concentration within the broader national backlash to New Coke in the South by people who saw this as a a betrayal of of Coca-Cola's roots and heritage. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. On the other hand... This story includes a, an unlikely non-American figure, but one who lived the American dream. You know, Roberto Goizueta's rise is an American dream story. 
he fled Cuba to the United States and rose to become the top executive in the biggest soft drink company in the world. But also several of Roberto's lieutenants were immigrants. Brian Dyson was Argentinian, Sergio Zyman, Mexican. So in the context of this regionality, of this American reluctance to embrace change, did their outsider status play a role in the new Coke story? It did. It did. And, and there was this idea, you know, that Goizeta in particular, that, that his role in the introduction of New Coke played into, which is that Coca-Cola had been sort of hijacked by these outsiders who didn't come from the same tradition and didn't subscribe, ascribe to the same heritage. You see this, there were op-eds at the time that would point out that Roberto Coizeta was originally from Cuba. You know, a not very subtle dig, you know, that's you know, I guess it was presented as kind of like this glib aside, but, you know, it's very much saying that, you know, these outsiders have gone and and ruined this great American company. And, you know, it's true, this wasn't the Woodruff family necessarily, but this had not been some kind of spur of the moment thing. You know, New Coke was years and years in the making. Gozetta had not just kind of launched into this. The The new guys in charge had recognized that, sort of Coke classic before it was known as such, was kind of flagging. The status quo was not really a tenable situation for Coca-Cola. And so it fell on the new guys to finally make the change in direction that they thought was necessary. Now, Coca-Cola isn't the most standard top-down company. It, it has a franchise model that relies heavily on regional bottlers. What role did these bottlers play in, in the new Coke saga? They were kind of the eyes and ears on the ground. And it's kind of funny, you know, they do a 180 over the course of this, or at least that's how they've been presented. You know, early on when New Coke was being rolled out by the larger corporation, the company was saying they're pointing to the feedback that they're getting from the bottlers as justification, you know, for why they're moving ahead with this. They tested this and, you know, there was one bottler who actually said that if you don't introduce New Coke, like we'll sue you. This is such a good product you better roll this out or you're going to cause us actual damages. And then as it came out, because these guys were, in many cases, I mean, they were much more closely connected to the community, they became sort of feedback nodes. And bottlers would report being ostracized in their communities. They would be ostracized at the local country club, for instance, because of the popular backlash against New Coke. And so then these reports would go back up the chain. So the bottlers were sort of the eyes and ears on the ground, getting a perhaps somewhat warped perspective on New Coke. Well, speaking of warped perspective, the media certainly got their talons into New Coke early. What role did the press play in, in New Coke's demise? It was a feeding frenzy. And as a member of the press reading these old stories, I can completely understand what they were thinking because it's a terrific story. You have these just this collection of weirdos who are stockpiling Coke in their garage, you know, the way some people prepared for Y2K, you know, just driving on long road trips to just fill up like U-Haul trucks with old glass bottles of the good stuff. You know, you have this Santa type figure in Washington state starting this national protest movement with like a hotline and t-shirts and memberships and stuff like that. I mean, this is a terrific story and I 100% understand why they went into it like they did, in part because it seems like, unlike so much of what else is going on, this is like truly empty calories we can kind of all digest. But it also wasn't. And so some of this coverage sort of misses, I think, what was really going on with the new Coke backlash. 
you know, that, that this wasn't just this like kind of frivolous, empty calorie, like, you know, people having fun, that this was actually this reactionary politics playing out in a just different format. I think it, it took a little bit more detachment. And so in the in the years that followed, you know, you, you started to see, so for instance, Thomas Oliver's 1986 book, The Real Coke, The Real Story, which came out just uh, about a year after, you know, the new Coke debacle, gets into this very, very well. So, you know, with a little bit of detachment, people were able to see what was happening and, and they were able to see for instance, some of these players for what they really were. So Gabe Mullins, this man in Washington state who's been leading this popular insurrection against a soda, turns out to be a real hustler. So with with some detachment, I think it was possible. And then flash forward to 2019 or, or so, and, and from where I was sitting, not invested in the Cola Wars, it came into much clearer focus. Let's talk about Gay Mullins a little bit. He was purportedly the David in a new David and Goliath story. But you pointed out here and in your article that his intentions weren't entirely pure. So tell me a little bit about him and, and what you've dug up. Yeah, he was a real estate speculator from Washington State who had sort of presented himself as this reluctant freedom fighter, a very 80s figure who was sort of living out like kind of Red Dawn type fantasy fighting against New Coke. He had decided not to move to Costa Rica in order to stay at home and, and fight Coca-Cola company, uh, started this national movement. The amount of money that he claimed to have personally put into this national movement fluctuated wildly depending on which reporter he was talking about. But there really was this, you know, old Soda Drinkers of America, which was formed as a, a public pressure campaign against Coke and was, you know, he was a telegenic figure with a big Santa beard, perfect for, you know, newspaper photos and just led this pressure campaign. You know, they had protests, they had T-shirts, they had bumper stickers, they sent out like little starter kits to their members on how to organize them in their fight against Coca-Cola. But he was also in it for the money. Oliver reported that he tried to get Coca-Cola to pay him $200,000 to endorse their product when they brought back Coke Classic. You know, he turned out not to like Coke even when they reintroduced it. He hadn't been able to drink it for years. It upset his stomach. So he wasn't like this person who had just suddenly been radicalized by the change in, in the soda formula and couldn't drink it anymore. He really was an opportunist who latched on to this particular moment and saw this as, as a hustler, as a, a chance to sort of make his mark and maybe make some money. So we've we've indicated the game Mullins might not have had the purest of intentions, but there, he's still a private citizen with First Amendment rights and a consumer who led a revolt. Is there a tension between just the the voice of the consumer and, and the responsibilities of a company to pay attention to them? Yeah, I mean, I, I was fascinated by the Mullins story, and I was sort of torn in how I thought about him because, on the one hand, I thought he was kind of full of it, but on the other. It was sort of, you know, refreshing to see this kind of, you know, it's not a shareholders. It was like a kind of consumer rebellion, which is also very 80s in a way. You know, the, the, just this like mass populist movement in order to regain some semblance of control over a corporation that you have no real control over. I mean, in, in a way, there's some sort of analog to the, the Redditors and, and GameStop. I had some sympathy for this guy who had managed to bring this extremely powerful group of people to heal, you know, a relationship that typically only goes one way, which is, you know, Coca-Cola spends, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars or, or whatever advertising and messaging and, and getting you to consume its product. And, and here this one guy in, in Seattle was able to organize the cola drinkers of America into reversing that relationship and, and getting Coke 
to just accommodate whatever it was that Gay Mullins wanted up to a degree because Gay Mullins <laughs> wasn't really clear what he wanted in the end. So I, I appreciated it about him. But at the same time, you know, he, he was able to accomplish this by using this sort of language of freedom and, and heritage and, you know, something as American as apple pie is being taken from us and, and so on that I think can be really toxic. And, and a lot of the new Coke backlash was fairly toxic. This idea that anything that's not like 1950s Norman Rockwell America is somehow less legitimate, that it's not the real thing. So I was torn between what Mullins ultimately accomplished, you know, from a power dynamic and the means by which he accomplished it. Throughout this conversation, a lot of things have, from this era, have rung true to modern America in in terms of just mega corporations and their relationship with their consumers, a consumer revolt, for instance, that you've likened, you know, rightfully to the Redditor revolt recently. But um, there's also this idea of the culture wars and something that we've now named in the more modern moment, cancel culture. In a sense, New Coke was canceled, but also in a sense, it was found to be lacking in the market of ideas. Is there a difference between cancel culture and the market of ideas? I mean, I think in a way it sort of gets at one of the lies of, you know, at least that aspect of the idea of of cancel culture, you know, which is that people just sort of, you know, had a big public debate over this. Like, yes, in a way it was very literally pulled from the shelves so you couldn't get it again. So it was far more canceled than I think a lot of canceled things are. But I mean, as you said, I mean, this is a corporation reacting to the marketplace and that's how marketplaces are supposed to work. Now, I happen to have a lot to say about sort of what that debate actually looked like and sort of the toxicity of, of some of that and sort of the, you know, foreboding comments, you know, from a lot of people who who used it as a cultural wedge to talk about a lot of other things that have nothing to do with soda. But products get discontinued or, or introduced all the time, you know, when like Mountain Dew Purple or whatever gets discontinued, it's not cancel culture. People just didn't really want to buy any of that. And so on, on some fundamental level, New Coke is, is also that. I mean, this is just a product fail. Most weight loss plans are one size fits all, not taking into account each person's individual needs. Noom takes into account dietary restrictions, medical issues, and other personal needs to build a plan that works for you. Everyone's journey is different. So your daily lessons are personalized to you and your goals. Stay focused on what's important to you with Noom's psychology and biology-based approach. Sign up for your free trial today at Noom.com. That's N-O-O-M.com. And check out Noom's first ever cookbook, The Noom Kitchen, for 100 healthy and delicious recipes to promote better living. Available to buy now wherever books are sold. So this story is, as you mentioned up top, and as we intimate as well, is often portrayed as just the quintessential tale of how to ruin something that's, that doesn't need to be fixed. But I'm wondering, all the research points to New Coke being a good idea. It did test better. And you've mentioned bottlers were clamoring for some sort of change, too. So what would have been the right way to introduce New Coke in your estimation? I think they could have started by playing down the newness of it. 
you know, one of the interesting things you find, in, and in fact, it comes up with the gay Mullen story, is it turns out that they had been changing the formula before they changed the formula and announced it as such. You know, that the, there was a step in between what they had been drinking in 1920 and what they were drinking in 1985. You know, a few years before that, they'd started replacing cane sugar with high fructose corn syrup. And when they reverted back from New Coke, they didn't go back to like the Woodruff recipe from 1890. They just went back to high fructose corn syrup and, and people didn't really care. It was called Coke Classic. So playing up in their name, the newness of it, emphasizing that change is something the American people can get behind to use one of their uh, officials, you know, words that I think fed into the backlash in a lot of ways that people took that as a rejection. People who didn't want to change, people who felt like, as they would say, their America was being taken from them, saw that as as a continuation of all the forces in the world that they didn't like. So it helped. They sort of gave people the language in a way to kind of further project their own fears and anxieties onto a soda. So to the extent that they could have avoided some of this backlash, I think they probably could have done it a little bit more gently. Well, avoiding the backlash probably is the number one solution, but I'm still struck, you know, even the name New Coke was tested and it turned out that including the word new made it more attractive and even taste better to prospective consumers. So how could this backlash have been predicted for any business person thinking of making a large change? How could they use the apparatus of market testing and corporate strategy to have seen this coming. And that's the other, what you just mentioned is, is the other aspect of it here, that it wasn't necessarily about that one-on-one, you know, primary interaction. It was actually about like a series of secondary interactions that people had. So the, you know, give somebody a taste test and they'll say, it's fine. This is good. They like it. You can have 10 people in the room and nine people have that reaction. But then you have that one person who's like this gay Mullins, Andy Rooney type who just starts raving about how his childhood has been taken from him and it starts to poison the well for other people. And that, I mean, that's sort of what happened here is, is it became this cultural totem that then, you know, these figures used to kind of whip up this frenzy of cultural politics became this big pile on and, and it became less about whether you liked the soda than whether you agreed with the pile on. It's not just about the taste test. It's about this like kind of broader, test of of how these kinds of people interact together, how these ideas travel within the market. And I think that's, in their defense, it's a much harder thing to predict. But I would also say that American history gives a pretty good uh, indication of how these things go. So in your final analysis, who killed New Coke? America killed New Coke. You know, I guess it had a lot of assailants. In the end, it was Coca-Cola company that, that pulled the plug. But it was a pretty fine product that would have been pretty successful, pretty popular, and instead ran into this intense cultural backlash. It, it became a political wedge in a lot of ways and poisoned what was meant to just be this massively, broadly popular, apolitical product. So at, at the end of the day, it was its, its target audience that came back to bite it. This moment, the introduction and failure of New Coke can be seen as kind of the, the battle of Waterloo for Coca-Cola. But, you know, that battle was not the war. So I'm curious what you, who you think uh, won the cola wars in general, Pepsi or Coke? I guess I think it's hard to have a loser in a, in a market battle in which there's only two people allowed into the market. So in the end, I mean, I think this worked out pretty great. 
for Coca-Cola, they were able to reinvent their product in a way by sort of rejecting the idea that they're reinventing the product. So they, they got what they wanted in the end, which was a big, splashy entrance on the market. It was just a slightly altered version of the soda that they wanted. But at the same time, they did have to sort of go along with the directions that soda was going. You know, soda was moving away from just this pure, like, cane sugar beverage that they were, everybody was drinking in the 50s. I guess I would just say that Coca-Cola, despite this narrative of, you know, this backlash to its product, despite this idea that it just blundered into this terrible decision, everything worked out well for it. So well, in fact, that conspiracies started to form, that Coca-Cola had rigged this entire thing, that New Coke was just this great diversion in order to drum up support for Coca-Cola, the original, even if it was a slightly altered version of the original Coca-Cola. You know, it wasn't much of a disaster for Coca-Cola at all, but I think it was a teachable moment. Well, what is the biggest business lesson one can learn from the New Coke story if it's a teachable moment? As somebody not invested at all at Coca-Cola's fortunes, it was tough to read a lot of this criticism and not kind of root for the company over these people in a way. I mean, these were very belligerent people projecting like animosity toward yuppies and and like vegetarians and Cuban immigrants onto a changing formula in a soda. So I understand why Coke yielded to these demands and this anger among the certain subset of the populace. But I also think it's important that sort of companies that find themselves in this position understand that it's not actually about them necessarily, that a lot of this is, is just the stew of cultural politics and they're just simply caught up in it. Sometimes the people making a huge fuss about this aren't on the level. Sometimes they're making a huge fuss about this for their own ends or they're making a huge fuss about this just because that's their politics. And, and it's not actually about your soda. It's not actually about whether it tastes good or not. It's not about whether the music's good or, you know, the sneakers are, are good. That This is just what happens when you find yourself in that situation. And so the, you, you do have to kind of make a decision as to whether that's like worth fighting for or not. And if it's a fight over a soda, like, and you can get away with just reverting back to this old recipe, then clearly it works out pretty great for Coke. Tim Murphy, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was my conversation with Tim Murphy, a senior reporter in Mother Jones' New York office, where he has covered everything from freight hopping to national politics. His story about New Coke was featured in the Best American Food Writing 2020. On the next season of Business Movers, Uber's spectacular rise wasn't the smoothest ride. The world-changing ride-sharing app broke more than a few rules and laws on its way to the top, and its controversial co-founder, Travis Kalanick, fostered a toxic corporate culture and eventually caught up with them. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to Business Movers ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today, or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus and Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. From Wondery, this is Episode 5 of Coca-Cola's Greatest Mistake for Business Movers. A quick note about our reenactments. In most cases, we can't know exactly what we say, but all our dramatizations are based on historical research. If you'd like to learn more about New Coke, we recommend The Other Guy Blinked, How Pepsi Won the Cola Wars by Roger Enrico and Jesse Kornbluth. 
The Real Coke, The Real Story by Thomas Oliver, and For God, Country, and Coca-Cola by Mark Pendergrass. Business Movers is hosted, edited, and executive produced by me, Lindsey Graham, for Airship. Audio editing by Molly Bach. Sound design by Derek Barons. Music by Lindsey Graham. This episode is produced by Stephen Walters. Executive producers are Stephen Walter for Ritual Productions and Jenny Lauer-Beckman and Marshall Louie for Wondering. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at Titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast early and ad-free on Wondery Plus. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Wondery Kids Plus on Apple Podcasts today.